This week, we continue our journey through 2 Timothy and pick up with chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 26. Now, in this chapter, Paul talks about the importance of handling the word truthfully. Handling the word rightly. There's warning against the misuse of the scripture texts, but there's also a loving concern for those who do it. As we work our way through the text this morning, when we grasp the gravity of being true to the word of God, and may we feel the love of God, the love God has for the lost and for each of us. May that love overwhelm us. We read the word of the Lord, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Remind them of these things and, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I was sitting over at my office in the house the other day, and I hear an eruption of yelling and crying from the basement. And soon there's the pounding of feet up the stairs, and four of my boys come tumbling through my door, and court is in session. The one pressing charges is crying. The one who's being charged is preparing his defense. Each brother is flanked by a younger brother, who is there to serve as witness for whichever side fits their preference in this particular case. As the case proceeds, each side spins their story. They spend very little time on the wrong that they committed, 
but they make passionate pleas about the wrongs that have been committed against them. They proclaim justification, demand justification for the negative reactions that they felt that were levied against them. He hit me first. He called me a name. He broke what I had been building. I had the toy first. And each of the witnesses give their accounts, typically swayed by whatever they may get from the outcome of the trial. And as the judge, I'm sitting there trying to discern what is actually true. What are the order of events that actually took place? What offenses were perceived and what offenses were true and what offenses were fabricated or made up? Even as children, humans are fantastic at bending and twisting situations and words to fit our narratives. We want to put a particular story out there and make sure that story is known. Or, or as a friend of mine used to say, why let truth get in the way of a good story? How often have I heard the term, control the narrative? Control the narrative. I mean, we see this all the time in our news and our social media. You know, scandal breaks and, and people are rushing to get ahead of the story. To control the narrative. To have others share their understanding of a story or event. We see it all the time because we know that the news cycle happens quickly. So if I can get in front of this story, if I can create the first impression I want people to have... In like a few days or hours even, this story is going to be gone and they'll have my perception instead of what the truth was. How can I bend these things to look better on me and what I believe in my narrative? And I know that that's going to move on and that's what people will remember. Because the next thing is coming down the line and I want things to be remembered the way that I want them remembered. And when you have a political climate as turbulent and divisive as the one that we are currently in, man, you can't escape the spin. The doctored narratives. Everybody is doing it. Everyone is twisting situations and events to fit their preferred view of the world, the view that makes them the most comfortable or fits their preconceived perceptions. Controlling the narrative, twisting the truth. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have any of us twisted the facts of a situation that are reflected, you know, a little more kindly on us so that we didn't look or feel so guilty? Or maybe we don't like how a story ends, so we just try to change it, right? Uh, I would assume that we don't have a lot of Game of Thrones watchers here today, but it's a fantasy series that just ended after eight seasons. And if you've been on social media at all in, in the past week, you know that the massive majority of its fan base is furious with how it ended. The memes are everywhere. In fact, there was even a petition that had gone out trying to get the final series to be rewritten and remade with different writers so that people could get the ending that they wanted. Last I checked, that position was up to like 8 million. 
And isn't that just so true? We don't like a story. We, we don't like what something says. We don't like the truth of a situation. And so we, we try to fix it, to doctor it, to spin it. So that it's a narrative, it, it fits a narrative that we prefer. So that it fits a story that we prefer. And we get so used to doing that in life, in our everyday life. it can also become something that we take with us to Scripture. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about things that can make us uncomfortable. Scripture has a lot to say about how we aren't good enough to earn favor in God's eyes. Scripture has a lot to say about our need for forgiveness, our need for Jesus. And Scripture has a lot to say about quite a few hot-button items, the kind of topics you stay away from at Thanksgiving. Things like gender roles, sexual preferences, abortion, hypocrisy, and eternal destinations, to name a few. And we can look at the things that Scripture says, and man, it can be tempting to try to twist, to work overtime, to reform things, to reinterpret, to to take other passages out of context so that a particular verse or passage or doctrine fits a narrative that we prefer. How many times have I heard, well, well, Jesus never said anything about this particular hot-button topic. So since he didn't care enough to speak about it, he must be okay with it. And man, the Jesus never said sure sounds a lot like a certain snake in a certain garden back at the beginning of the world and the phrase that he used to help everything go wrong. Did God really say? Does the Bible really speak against these things if Jesus didn't? And then there are those that that understand that the whole of Scripture are the words of Jesus. That the writing of the New Testament and the Old Testament were, were given to the writers by the living God, and yet we still don't necessarily like a particular doctrine. Culture's changing, right? Like culture is is moving a more progressive direction. So we feel that the church needs to move with culture. And so we twist the Greek. We we twist the Hebrew and reinterpret verses so that they fit a narrative that we prefer. And that's what is happening in the church in Ephesus in our text this morning. That's what's happening. The scoundrel Hymenaeus, who is mentioned previously in 1 Timothy as one of the people that Paul expelled from the congregation, has returned with a new sidekick and is back to his heretical ways. Hymenaeus is, is proclaiming false doctrine, and by his proclamation, the faith of some is being shaken. Hymenaeus has, has swerved from the truth. Well, we don't know why he swerved. We don't know if it's willful blindness, if it's ignorance. If it's because he's pursuing power, if it's because he just doesn't like the story and he has a preferred narrative. But what we do know is that by swerving and then starting word fights or quarrels over words, as our text calls them this morning, he is twisting the truth to fit his narrative. And he's confusing others. He's shaking the faith of some of the other believers. And so often, what we want to do 
is come strong against these injustices. We want to join the fight. We want to take the bait and get caught up in the quarrels over words, in in the word fights. Either that, or or we want to just ignore it, right? Just avoid it altogether. I I tend to be more in the, no, like, this is wrong, and I'm going to tell you why it's wrong, so get out of here. Like, that tends to be more the way I go, but I know that there are some who are like, I don't want anything to do with conflict, I'm just out. Like, I'm nothing, I'm, I'm done. But what's Paul's instruction to Timothy concerning this? In our text this morning. He says not to fight. He he says to stay out of it. He says that word fights are no good. And they simply ruin the hearers. Those that are participating and those listening to the arguments. How many times have we seen fellow Christians get sucked into a word fight on Facebook. Or some other form of social media. And man, we're seeing an abundance with the topic of abortion being so prevalent in the news cycle. A friend of mine whom I appreciate and respect, though we have very different beliefs in almost every area, shared a post on Facebook from a site called The Christian Left that stated that God was fine with abortion and that Christians who say otherwise are reading what they want to read into Scripture. Pot, meat, kettle. And since the article was so inflammatory, a few Christian brothers and sisters joined the debate and and they got sucked into the black hole of the word fight. Because it's tempting. And we get mad. And the injustice of poor biblical interpretation is frankly enraging. I almost got sucked in myself multiple times. But as I was reading through the comments, it was just so clear that really confusion was winning the day. The arguments, particularly on the Christian side, were made very poorly. The whole thing basically became a fight in the mud where everybody gets dirty, where lines are crossed, and people are offended. And that's not how we witness for Christ. That's not letting the Spirit do His work in the heart of the non-believer. That's us saying, don't worry, God. I'll defend your word. I got this. Which is exactly the opposite of what Paul is telling us to do this morning. Instead, God is saying, don't worry about defending my word. God's word can defend itself. We don't have to warn him when people are abusing it either. He's he's well aware of all situations. He knows who is using his word rightly and who is not. Paul references a story from Numbers 16 when he writes, The Lord knows those who are his, in verse 19. Now it's the story of the Levite, Korah, and his followers, Dathan and Abiram. Moses is leading the people in the wilderness, and and Korah, Dathan, and Abram, and their 250 followers rise up against him in an effort to take over the priesthood. And so to settle the dispute, Moses tells Korah, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. In the morning, the Lord will show whose is his. The next morning, the 250 followers of Korah are given censures to hold, plates on, on little chains. So they're given these these censures and they have incense and coals in them. And then Moses tells the people to get away from the tents of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. 
And the, and the glory of the Lord comes down on the camp, and the earth opens up and swallows the three men and their families and all their possessions. And the people begin to run in panic, worried that they too will be swallowed up by the earth. And then fire from heaven comes down and consumes the 250 men that were followers of Korah. And Moses has the censures collected and says that they have been purified by the fire of God and they are then hammered into an overlay for the altar. Now that's a pretty crazy story. It's a pretty awesome and fantastic story. For in it we see that God knows whose are his. He knows his people. We don't have to make him aware. And there is a cost for abusing the word of God. There is a cost. And yet it's important to recognize that we are not the ones exacting payment. God is the one doing that. He knows who are his. He knows the hearts of people. He knows what has happened and what will happen. And we need to trust the defense of his word and his character to him. As I was working through our text this morning, working through the need to handle the word of God correctly, the dangers of attempting to shift, to adapt the word to our preferred narrative, a name kept coming to mind. And it may be familiar to a few of you. But it's that of Rachel Held Evans. Now on May 4th, Rachel Held Evans died from complications arising from a severe allergic reaction that she had to antibiotics she was receiving for the flu as well as an infection. She was a healthy 37-year-old and left behind a husband and two young children. Now, Rachel was a very divisive voice in the Christian world over the past few years. She held the baton high for important issues the church and culture are wrestling with today, issues of gender, sexual preferences, even socioeconomic status, and encouraged many to wrestle with her. At one point, the Washington Post called Evans the most polarizing woman in evangelicalism. Rachel was always trying to break into, trying to speak into the conservative echo chamber. Now, there was very little that Evans and I agreed on, but right now I am not intending to critique or agree with her. Instead, I would like to point out the obvious, that Evans was not alone. She had a large following and she had developed and encouraged a large community because so many have the same questions that she did. She wasn't the only one asking them. She just gave them a figurehead to rally behind. And because of the questions she asked, the walls she was trying to break down, many evangelicals wanted to either attack her or avoid her. And in so doing, they unintentionally said to many others, your questions have no place here. Toe the line, or we will attack and avoid you. How many of us have had that response? I know that was my immediate response to basically any article from Rachel that I read. She consistently infuriated me with the way she was interpreting scripture. I would get so mad. 
I would either engage in debate or eventually just avoid altogether anyone who was sharing her posts or spouting her ideology. Attack or avoid. But as I read this text, I have to wonder, is that the proper response? Is that the proper response? No. No, it's not. Not according to Paul in verses 24 to 25. When he again encourages us to avoid fights, to be patient, not to alienate, not not to push away, but to be kind, to patiently endure, and to correct with gentleness. As I studied this text, I realized my need to repent for how I had treated those that were mishandling the scriptures. I had been systematically cutting them out of my life when what I needed to be doing was praying for them. And loving them. Because there isn't anyone that God doesn't love. He loves all of us. And and he encourages us to see our neighbor, our friend, our family members, the people we struggle with. Those who frustrate us. Through the same eyes. And with the same love that he does. And while this this passage is hard, it's a struggle for those of us who are incensed at the mishandling of God's word. It is also so important to recognize that this is not permission to abuse the word. It's not license to control the narrative of scripture. To fit it into our preferred perspectives. We are still instructed, commanded even, to handle the word rightly. And we are also told that we shouldn't burn bridges. Verse 25a to 26 reads, so so before this, or before this, he's talking about how we should be treating those that we disagree with, with love and patience and endurance. 25a picks up saying, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him. To do his will. Arguing, attacking, avoiding, it burns bridges. And how thankful we can be that God doesn't do that. He is constantly looking to bring those who wander back into the fold. His love is so great that he always desires. To bring us close to him. What a wonderful word for each of us in this text this morning. God is not looking to burn his bridges with you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. Maybe you've mishandled the word and tried to to shape it into your preferred view of culture, politics. Maybe you've, you've had an abortion and are, are carrying that shame, hoping that, that no one in the church will find out. Maybe you've been trapped in addiction to porn, alcohol, your opiate of choice, or some other self-destructive practice. Maybe you've attacked someone, made them feel small and insignificant because of their views. 
their views on the church and their practices of it are in it. And they no longer feel welcome in the house of God. These are just a few things. But we know what we've done. We know how we have fallen short. How we continue to fall short. Church, friends, God does not burn bridges. Repent, for our God is faithful and just, and He will forgive. He will purify. He will purify. I think of those those 250 men holding those censures. And the fire from heaven coming down and, and consuming the men and purifying the censures. These things that were used for evil. These things that were trapped in abuse. Purified. And then used, pounded as an overlay for the altar. Used for his will, his purpose, to bring him worship and glory and honor. He purifies He will run across that bridge that he does not burn and will embrace you, me. The tears of joy running down his cheeks. He longs to be reunited with those who have wandered. He seeks them intentionally. He goes after those who have fallen away. He redeems the broken, and once he has redeemed them, he sends them out. He uses them as the overlay for his altar. He redeems the broken, devalued. And he uses them, purifies them. And he encourages them to be true to his word, to use it, to wield it rightly. And he sends them proclaiming the message of redemption. He uses them, the broken wanderers. He uses them. He uses us in his mission to bring about his kingdom. What a wonderful, amazing, and powerful God we serve. Amen.